Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. I'm actually going to be using Joseph as a catalyst for a line of thought about God's plan and how it works, if we can even attempt to do that. Um, With God's plan, I think we just need to premise this whole talk with we don't really know how it works, do we? It's, It's a mystery. It's one of those mysteries that we don't really understand. We know it will come to fruition one way or another, but we don't exactly know how it works. And if we look at the Bible, at the Christmas story, we know that despite the limited knowledge we have about Joseph, we know that he was an instrumental part in God's plan. Without Joseph, young, teenage, pregnant Mary would have had a very hard time raising the baby Messiah in first century Jerusalem. And so I'm going to be using or looking at Joseph and then reflecting that back upon us and trying to see, well, how, how does God's plan work with us? How important a role do we play? What's our responsibility in the plan? Can, can we mess it up? How much agency do we have? Do we have a choice to enter in or will it just happen with us regardless of what we want to do? These are the kind of questions that come up, at least in my head, when I think about God's plan. But because we know really so little about God's plan, and because we don't really know that much about Joseph as well, I thought this might be a prime opportunity to practice a little bit of Midrash. And Midrash is something, Beck, I think Becca, you spoke about it a few weeks ago when I was off with COVID. But if you weren't at that service, a quick explanation of Midrash, it, I mean, it sounds like some kind of dermatitis, but what Midrash is, it is an ancient Jewish practice of approaching scripture. And it's usually applied to parts of scripture that we don't get a whole lot of information about or it's a bit vague, where there's a lot of gaps. And so I figured this will be a great opportunity to practice that. And what Midrash seeks to do, it's to not only look at the words of scripture, but it's also to look at the words between the words and the words behind the words and beyond the words. It's to look at the gaps and ask the question, what if we were to place this assumption in these gaps? Where would that take us? What would the line of thought be? Or look at it at a different way. What if hypothetically we said this about the scriptures? And the whole thing with Midrash is, it always starts with the word perhaps or what if. Because one of the rules around Midrash is it doesn't replace gospel. It doesn't replace scripture. And that is really important because it's not about going off on some weird tangent and saying heretical things in church. It's about just saying, what if? Where does this take us? And Midrash seeks to look beyond the scriptures and possibly find what is mystery, find what is eternal, find what is God, find what is life. It's kind of like, um, I'm not a big Star Trek fan, but I know the, uh, the phrase, you know, boldly going where no man's gone before. And the thing with Star Trek, wherever they get to where they're going, then no man's gone before. There's always someone there. <laughs> and, so, and so what we're doing is we're boldly going where no theologian has gone before and possibly encountering God there who got there ahead of us, which is really interesting. And so I'm going to take you through a couple of lines of thoughts about God's plan and Joseph. And this at least is where my head goes with this kind of stuff. Anyway, before we get into that, let's go through one of the scriptures I have about Joseph. This is from Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 24. 
This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do, and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And so when I was younger, probably a lot younger, probably like early, mid-teenage years, I remember hearing this story and thinking in my head, what would have happened if Joseph didn't go through with his part of the plan? What if Joseph woke up from that dream and ended up just going, you know what, that was just a weird dream and still went ahead with his plan to quietly divorce Mary? Would that have stuffed up God's plans? Would God be up there just scratching his head going, well, I don't know what to do now. Mary's already pregnant. It's like we've kind of committed to this kind of thing. And so this is kind of like, this is the kind of question that was going around in my head. But we know God's plan will come out one way or another. And so the next line of thought I had was, well, God probably would not have chosen Joseph to play this part in the Christmas story if he knew Joseph wouldn't have gone ahead with the plan to begin with. And so, jo- so God knows our choices before we're going to make them, in some sense. We don't understand it, but somehow the plan is bigger than our understanding, our timeline, our choices um, as well. And so then the next question I had, and this is just following this line of thought, the next question I would had is, then how did it come that Joseph was the right person? What made Joseph the right person? Did God endow him with some kind of some qualities that were needed for him to see out this part of the plan, that line of thinking leads you to try to understand that as God knits us together in our mother's womb, that perhaps, just perhaps, he blesses some people with certain abilities than others. And so maybe he's up there, you know, pressing the buttons, tweaking the dials, adding the ingredients in, and maybe in Joseph's case, he added a little bit more faithfulness, a bit more loyalty, a bit more humbleness, extra belief in dreams, who knows what he added. Whatever it took to make Joseph the right person for the right job. However, as we follow this line of thought, we come up against some problems, don't we? One of the big red flags for me is that if God is engineering or programming us for a certain task before we're even born, does does that actually infringe upon free will? That's a big one, because we know free will is one of the greatest gifts that God gave to mankind. Even back, way back in the creation story, God gave Adam and Eve the gift of free will. They willfully chose to disobey God. Anything that comes our way as human beings, we have the choice to accept or deny. Even our very own creator, we have absolute free will, and I don't think God would infringe upon that. Another issue by going down this line of thought, is that if some of us are chosen to play a certain role or to have certain giftings, does then that mean others others of us are not chosen? 
And this leads to other questionable theologies like uh, double predestination, where we talk about we've got the elect, those to be chosen, to be in God's blessings and graces, and nothing they can do can ever remove them from the grace of God, which is great. But on the other side, <laughs> we've got the retrobate, those that are created just to be condemned, and nothing they can do can ever get them into God's graces. And the whole idea that God will allow some people to be born only to be condemned, to be destined to suffer eternally is a horrific thought. And it also, this line of thought also leads us to understand God to be some kind of big puppet master. And so he's up there, you know, pulling all the strings and everything. And we, we hear, I heard this a lot growing up. Everything that happens in the world is God's will. And we know God's a good God, but then there's horrific things that happen in the world. Does, are these all of God's will? Like if, you know, some, some of us might, might have lost a child. That's part of God's plan. Is it? There are wars, there's genocides, there's natural disasters that takes out thousands, millions of people even. Is that part of God's plan? And we try, we begin, going down this line of thought, we begin to try to justify things that aren't really justifiable. And so let me propose another way of thinking about God's plan. And this, this is this line of thought that I'm going down. Rather than considering that God wraps mankind around his plan, what if we flip that on its head? What if, and this is perhaps a midrash thing, what if God wraps his plans around the course of mankind instead? And so what this, what, so what I'm saying is that rather than God altering human history, infringing on free will, trying to twist and contort mankind to fit into his plan, what if God waits on us patiently, what if he waits on us faithfully for us by our own free will to choose to enter into his plan, to accept that invitation of our own free will and enter in? This alludes to a patient God. And we read about in scripture, we have a very patient God, don't we? A God that's not in a desperate hurry to see his plan carried out, but knows it will in good time and in our time as well. And so going down this line of thought, it's possible to consider that maybe, perhaps, Jesus could have actually been born at any number of times over human history, but it just so happened, about 2,000 years ago, all the pieces fell into place and the incarnation was able to flow. And perhaps, just perhaps, Joseph was one of the last pieces of that, of that puzzle to fit into place and Joseph accepting Mary, even though the child in her belly was not his, was all that was left that was needed for the incarnation to happen. We don't know that for sure, but perhaps. And I think it's an interesting thought. You see, the thing I like about this perspective is that it puts agency on us. We have the choice whether we want to enter in or not, and that's absolutely fine. But we don't have ownership. The plan is still God's. It is still his plan. Because often in church, when I've heard about God's plan spoken about, it's often given to us with a big side helping of guilt. <laughs> and we are told as Christians, as a church, if we do not enter into God's plan, if we do not go out there and aggressively chase God down and do whatever we have to do to make the kingdom come, then his will will not be on earth as it is in heaven. And there's a lot of guilt associated with that. And 
analogy I like to use when I think about God's plan or the kingdom of God is, is like a running river, a stream rapidly flowing down. And we're all standing on the, on the riverbank watching this stream flow past us. And it's up to us whether or not we decide to accept the invitation and jump in to this river. Whether we jump in or stay on the shore bank where it's safe and where it's familiar, that river will keep on running. But if we jump in, we will be swept up and go along for the ride as well. And it might be frightening. It might be daunting. But I think it is also a path to wholeness as well. And if we don't jump in, that, that's absolutely fine. We're not holding back the kingdom of God. God's not even disappointed in us. But if we do enter in, I think there is a lot there that is life-giving that we can, that we can find. And so God comes to us in a number of different ways. We have lots of different analogies for it. We have, uh, we have Jesus knocking on, on our door. We've got, <laughs> when you type into Google persistent knocking, you get a picture of Sheldon knocking on Penny's door from Big Bang Theory, which I love. <laughs> and so it's the knock. It's the invitation. It's the call, whatever we might want to call it. We know it is God. In my experience, it's because it is a still quiet voice. It's a small voice, but it is there. And it is persistent, gently inviting us to enter in again and again and again. And we can easily ignore it, absolutely, if we choose to. Or we can open that door. We can answer that call. We also know it is God because even though it might not be logical, even though it might look like everyone is going left, but it's calling us to go right instead. It might look like stepping off the ledge and into the void. But even though that void is terrifying and it's unknown and it's scary, it feels more like life than standing on the riverbank and watching the stream flow by. There's something about it. That's my experience anyway. And we can accept or decline it as we choose to. Joseph's invitation came to him in a way of scandal. Mary was pregnant out of wedlock and legally Joseph was well in his right to divorce Mary. And while this was a very difficult time for Mary, absolutely, uh, Carol was talking about how Jesus interrupted Mary's life, absolutely. Joseph was very much interrupted as well. Joseph's had, basically Joseph's name was dragged through the mud. Now we think Joseph was just, wasn't he just a simple carpenter from Nazareth? Did he have much of a name to shame? Well, well don't forget, Joseph was also part of the bloodline of David, the noble bloodline that the, the Messiah was prophesied to come through. And so people knew who Joseph was. He was an elderly man. They think he was about probably in his 70s or 80s. He was an elderly, respectable man from the noble line, uh, Jewish bloodline. And so people watched this bloodline like people today might watch the Kardashians. People know who is who. And so Joseph's name was shamed by staying with Mary. And when we understand this, we can then start drawing a line of thought to... Uh, another detail in the Christmas story. As Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, knocking on the doors of all the inns, but getting rejection after rejection after rejection, do we really think that all these innkeepers would be rejecting a respectable male from the noble bloodline of David? 
or did they open the door, see Joseph and see pregnant Mary next to him and were they being shunned? It's an interesting thought. It puts another layer on, on the Christmas story. And again, we don't really know this for sure, but what if, perhaps, this is, this is these gaps that we fill in and to see what extra layers we can find here as well. And so Joseph's invitation was one of humiliation. It was one of shame. It was to be shunned, judged. It was about sideways glances and upturned noses. Yet he stayed with Mary. We could even say that he died to himself for Mary. He died to his own ego for Mary's sake. And when we follow that line of thought, maybe, just maybe, Jesus not only got the goodness of his character from God, but perhaps he got a lot of that from Joseph as well. Growing up under the watch of his adopted father Joseph, a man of that kind of character, perhaps this is where Jesus learnt how noble it is to sacrifice your own life for the ones that you love. Seeing Joseph do that, not only for Mary, but I'm sure he's done that many other times in his life as well. This is an attribute to his own character. And so maybe Joseph had a bigger part to play in Jesus' upbringing and character than we might have originally thought. And again, we don't know this perhaps. These are just filling in the blanks. But perhaps it's an interesting thought. And so just to finish off, to turn this now back on ourselves, perhaps we can consider Joseph's story as a testament to the impact that just one man can have. We see all throughout Scripture the impact that just one person accepting the invitation and entering into God's plan, the impact that can have. And Paul writes famously in Romans, through one man sin entered the world. That's a big deal. But through another man, uh, another man's sin was defeated. That's an even bigger deal. And so every one of us here tonight, each and every one of us, we're just one person. And maybe, just maybe, you might be hearing that knock on the door. You might, be, you might have heard that still quiet voice inviting you to jump into that river. And it's up to you whether you accept or not. But if you do, perhaps it's a, a path towards wholeness. And perhaps accepting that invitation looks something along the lines of what Joseph had to do. Offering grace where judgment was otherwise expected. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, I think I was thinking when I was talking, it's quite funny, like there's, there is so much, so little on Joseph in, in the Bible. But, so we just thought, I don't know, let's get two guys to come up and talk and let's just, you know, try and make up as much content as we can. Because <laughs> guys need a bigger voice in the Bible. Um, <laughs> so, so let's elevate that voice. Um, and it's not really not what we're doing. In fact, it's kind of, um, as I was looking at Joseph and the things that I'm going to share, it's kind of it's sort of the opposite, really. And I think that's the loveliness of Joseph's story is kind of like what you're saying. It's not about him. Um, this is the story of God becoming embodied in the world and Joseph's kind of this, plays this part um, of, of that story. Um, and we really, yeah, Apart from just his name being mentioned, we, there's not a lot that we actually talk about him. So it, it's it's interesting, and I think there's some great aspects like Oren started to wrestle with that we can we can um, have some fun with and expand and really learn learn a bit about God and about ourselves with. So um, I'm going to just read a little bit. Oh yeah, so the, sorry. This is we're going to look at Joseph as in average Joe. So um, and he's AKA Emmanuel's stepdad. Um, and if anyone's seen this movie, actually, this, uh, when I found this picture, I realised there are some similarities with what the aspects of Joseph that I'm talking about with um, this the dodgeball film. Anyway, that's 
that's an aside, but um, let's just go on to the, to the verse. I'll read it out again, um, but I've kind of paraphrased the first 15 verses into all the genealogical goodness. Um, and then from verse 16, it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's kind of the end of that lineage. Um, Thus there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And I, I think that's not technically correct either, I don't think. But, um, but again, it's, that's not really the point of what this is. It's about placing and finding meaning in what's going on. Um, and then, just to go through this um, verse again, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting, like, the reason Or and I both read from this is because th- this is actually of the Gospels, this is the only one that really talks about Joseph much at all. Um, and so, we, yeah, like Oren said, we don't get a lot of info. There's not a lot, a lot to go on. And so it gives us a bit of freedom to, um, to kind of be creative. And I think that's what we see the Jewish tradition doing with Scripture. And Jesus himself actually was, um, took Scripture and wasn't afraid to... to um, to work with it, and, and I think that's what, what we can do here. So um, next week, Kara's going to be looking at Mary, much bigger part in this play, um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's fun to look at Joseph. And we don't, while we don't have much, we do have this big geneolo- genealogical kind of line, the, the royal line, that is part of Joseph's identity, and probably, you know, it's a big part of his identity. It's a, that's a, a reality for him. But the interesting thing is we also know that he was a carpenter. And so the reality of Joseph's lived existence probably was not... Um, a, a, he wasn't wealthy. We know they didn't have a lot of money. So while he was sort of in this royal bloodline, that kind of... He didn't live like a king. He lived quite a poor existence. And, um, and so we sort of have this contrast in his life of, of sort of this identity that he could hold on to, but also the much more humble reality of his day-to-day life. Um, and it's, so it's interesting, I guess, to look at this sort of story of Jesus coming into the world and the dynamics and the shame and Joseph's responses to that in light of the, those sort of tensions that might have been in him that was like him sort of thinking, oh, I'm a p- person of importance. I'm descended from David versus his day-to-day life and also... The, possibly the shame and things that came about. Um, so I was, I was thinking about this and thinking about this idea of ego um, because it's um, something that exists in all of us, this thing that wants to feel important and feel valued 
and maybe Dan, you can pop it up. There's a couple of um, Richard Raw um, ideas about the ego. So I'll just read these out. It says, the ego is that part of the self that wants to be significant, central, and important by itself, apart from anyone else. It wants to be both separate and superior. The human ego prefers anything, just about anything, to falling or changing or dying. The ego is that part of you that loves the status quo even when it's not working. It attaches to past and present and fears the future. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I can so see this sort of tension playing out in Joseph when he's got, um, like we all do, these bits um, inside us that kind of want to feel important and feel superior and feel above others and I think there's always that kind of thing at play and it's sometimes that's self-preservation and that's okay and, and at other times I think we really need to be able to keep our ego in check and um, so it's interesting to see what, what Joseph did in this situation um, and so one of the things that we didn't see him do at all anywhere is actually speak. There's no, he doesn't have a line at all in the Bible, he never actually says anything and I think that's really telling that he's actually a silent player. He actually doesn't have any spoken contribution to things. And that um, says a lot, I think, about maybe what his um, reaction or how he dealt with the ego part of himself. Because I think often it's through speaking up or having our say or whatever that, we, that our ego sort of tries to come out. Um, and the other thing is that he, yeah, he was legally definitely able to, like they weren't even married, but they're sort of the marriage procedures for, for Joseph and Mary were kind of in place when this was all happening. And yeah, legally he could have divorced her and technically according to the law, although maybe this had, had stopped kind of happening, um, if, you know, if Mary had cheated on Joseph, then she could have been killed and so could have the, whoever she cheated with. Like So there was quite, it was really harsh and there was a lot of public shame around that. Um, and so you can see why Joseph, it was like it's the verse said, it was in his mind um, that to, to maybe divorce her. And, uh, and um, that, yeah, that mind just reminded me of that sense of ego. Like I wonder what was going on in the mind of Joseph, that sense of self-preservation or not wanting to have his, um, himself, his name pushed through the mud when he was, you know, the royal bloodline. So the, I'm sure there was all these kind of tensions and things going on. Um, but with... Um, perhaps the prompting of God via the angel, Joseph chose a much gracious, more gracious path and a path that um, was not nice for him. Like it probably did mean a lot of shame and a lot of people would have just assumed the worst. He might have had this great conviction that, oh yeah, no, this is, this is good. This is this immaculate conception, but I, don't, I can't imagine his neighbours going, oh yeah, yeah, no, we, th- we thought it was God's baby. <laughs> like, um, so, yeah, so there would have been like this, yeah, this sense of shame about, about Joseph and about his existence and getting into the inn and lots of things after that. I, I wonder what it was like even with Jesus as a young boy, whether it was always just the whisperings of the community that, um, and Joseph's ego maybe getting a blow after blow for maybe a long time. Um, and so what did it, it look like for Joseph to be ushering or part of ushering God into the world, um, it meant being a, a non-character, kind of, in this, in this part of the story. He was stepdad 
to, to God. He was sort of the forgotten um, part of the story. It, it meant him saying no to, to those parts of his ego that wanted to feel self-important. Um, it meant facing public ridicule. Um, and it meant saying yes, I think, to walking a much more humble path of existence. Um, and oh, maybe, Dan, I'll put up the next, the next slide. This, uh, this is a lovely bit from Bar Barbara Brown-Taylor. She says, The heart of the story is about a just man who wakes up one day to find his life wrecked, his wife pregnant, his trust betrayed, his name ruined, his future revoked. It is about a righteous man who surveys a mess he had absolutely nothing to do with and decides to believe that God is present in it. He owns this mess, he legitimates it, and gives it a name, and the mess becomes the place where new life is born. It's lovely, isn't it? This sense of um, somehow in the mess and horribleness of life that that's where life is born. And similarly to how Oren reflected, I was thinking about... Um, this humble path of Joseph, and I kind of saw these parallels with some of what he did or didn't do with the sort of character of Jesus and therefore also the character of God that we see. And I wonder how much of his, yeah, raising his stepson um, was contributed to that and also just how much of it was actually just him showing the character of God even before we saw God in flesh in Jesus. So the things that I, I sort of saw was this idea of redefining justice. So we saw that from Joseph. Justice would have been probably divorcing Mary, but he, that wasn't the sort of justice that, that Joseph saw as, as fair or good. Um, and we see that Jesus doing that all through his life, redefining what justice and what fairness and what grace means. Um, and we see Joseph picking that humble that humble path, and that's you know what it says in Philippians about Jesus too. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He he walked that humble path, um, and then also that idea of saying yes to seeing God in the in the mess and in the lowest of moments. So in the sort of probably public shame of Joseph, but then I was thinking about like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's kind of at his lowest point and he's like in probably some form of despair and depression um, but he's sort of in that moment still sort of is crying out for the for the will of God to come about and he's seeing God and he's connecting with with God in the depths of things and I think oh that's how cool that maybe he saw some of that in in Joseph as well um, and we certainly can as well um, and so what does this what does this tell us about like life um, and about God, the story of Joseph, what, what can we get from that? Um, so, first one, I guess just life happens. We all know, we all know that. This, is like, this was not some amazing plan that Joseph knew was going to happen. The mess just happens in life. Um, but the hope, I guess, is that God is found in the mess, like Barbara Brown-Taylor talked about, that God is in the mess, and maybe often... Um, we are looking for God in the status quo or in the normal or in the things of power and prestige, but maybe the places where God is much more likely to be found is in the humble and the quiet and the painful um, and the difficult parts of life, which sort of sucks. But, but it also is great to know that God is there in those places. And so I was thinking, I was just thinking about this and going, what, 
what is it that I, I learn from the Joseph story? Um, what are the things that we can grasp or that I wanted to grasp? So first thing, we should listen to women. It's probably, probably a good one. Um, Joseph is happy to... Mary, Mary is the main character in bringing Jesus into this world. She has all the speaking parts. She, it's her song that gets sung. It's, it's all this beautiful stuff. And that's good. And I think that was probably a massive, it's a massive thing back then and still, sadly, a big thing now for, <laughs> for guys to be happy to listen to the voices of women. And I think that's something that shouldn't be forgotten in this story. Um, and to be like Joseph um, and to not respond out of ego in life, is a, that's a big challenge for me. I think there's often so much in life where um, the more I think about it, the more I, I see the bits of me in, in all different aspects of life where I want to feel um, good about myself. And often that feeling good about myself is not just like a healthy sense of self. Often it's the ego wanting to place myself above others and um, anyone that's played in my basketball team would know that it doesn't happen on the basketball court. I have no ego on the basketball court. I'm just gracious and Joseph-like. Um, but <laughs> there's, like, there's lots of wrestles in lots of different parts of life where, yeah, where our ego just wants, to, wants us to be important and often that comes at the cost of others um, or at least on how, how we um, perceive that. So, so that's, that's a challenge, I think, for all of us in lots of aspects of life, to be like Joseph and to pick the path that is humble and where we can say no to our ego. Um, but the, and then the other thing that is just amazing is that God is there. And I, I think that's, if there's one thing that I want to always remember from this is that God is there in the mess, in all stages of life. And often through the lowest parts of life is where the best things of life come through. Um, and so... In, for Joseph, I was thinking about this too. He, like, he didn't like he didn't get to see his son kind of come into like full ownership of being being God in flesh. He probably died some while Jesus was quite young still, and like there was no public recognition of who he was. Joseph didn't didn't be like, oh man, that was all worth it because now everyone knows who Jesus is. Like he died before that all happened. And so, but yet he saw the goodness of God come into this world without getting to actually really taste the goodness himself. And that's, so I guess God being in the mess with us doesn't necessarily mean that everything ends up happy for us in the short term, but it does mean that we're all, God is always there with us and that God is somehow always at work bringing goodness out of, of every situation somehow. And that's hard to imagine sometimes, I think, in some situations. But I think that sense of Emmanuel, God with us, is, is what I want to leave us with tonight. This sense that through all things that Emmanuel, God, is with us and particularly in that mess. And um, I'll just read out this last quote from Brad Jerzak um, that talks a little bit about sort of that sense of ego um, and the sense of our call in that as well. So um, it says, on the other hand, a completely good God whose nature is pure love produces people who imitate him by exemplifying love. That God who willingly laid down his life for others inspires loving followers 
who truly are free, free to move beyond the slavery of self-seeking into self-giving sacrificial love. And I think that's, that's kind of the heart of Joseph as well. That's the, what I see in his story is this guy who let go of self-seeking and embodied this idea of sacrificial love that we also see perfectly embodied in Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.